everybody. Welcome to another Tuesdays with Trey. There are a thousand reasons, at least, uh, that I enjoy uh, doing this podcast, uh, starting with the chance to be with you each week and also including the opportunity to visit with some uh, really thought-provoking guests from former to sitting members of the House and Senate, prosecutors and athletes and coaches and psychologists and authors. Even from time to time, get some help with my golf swing, uh, which I probably need to go ahead and get one of these guys back on. Anyone who can help me through the slew of despond that I'm currently in. But I am out this week. But even though I'm out, I thought it would be fun to take a look back at uh, one of those conversations that I enjoyed the most. So I hope that you all enjoy this encore episode. And I will be back very soon. Thank you for listening. I had our guest today on our Sunday show, and I said thank you for helping us make decisions based on the right evidence at great risk to yourself. And then it happened. A car he was traveling in was struck in Ukraine. Two men were killed. Benjamin Hall was nearly killed. But he was, as the title of the book he wrote says, saved. And he joins us now. Benjamin, thank you for being with us. Trey, it's a great pleasure to be with you today. Why journalism? You know, I remember as soon as I graduated from college, I just wanted to go out and I wanted to see the world, meet people, explore, learn things that I hadn't learned before. For me, journalism was the way of doing that. I always thought that it would give me a front row seat into history. And uh, I didn't want my life to pass me by without having seen that. And so within a week of graduating from college, I took a first flight I could find into Iraq. And I just set out trying to tell stories. I found people fascinating. I think it's you, you see stories of horror and you see stories of resilience and stories of courage. And you see stories across the board. And so for me, that's what journalism gave me. And as you work as a journalist for a while, like I won't deny that at the beginning, I also wanted adventure. I wanted to go out and see new things. But as you start to tell people stories and you hear some of them, and, and then you start to appreciate how that affects our viewers, our readers back home, and it becomes an ever more important task for me. And so journalism is now something which is part of my life. I, I believe in it wholeheartedly. I believe it is a critical part of our society. Um, and despite what happened to me, despite the attack, despite all my injuries today, I would encourage everyone to go out there to find a great newspaper uh, and to keep reading it because we're out there on the front lines trying to bring you the real truth of what's happening on the ground. All right, Benjamin, I think even this early in the interview, our listeners can hear that you are a much better person than I am. So I'm going to ask this question, although you may have too much class to answer it. I'm going to ask it anyway. Is it at all frustrating when people who have not done any of what you described, they, they haven't bothered to go to the scene of the action, they haven't bothered to interview people, and yet they have an opinion? Does it mm -hmm. does it at any level bother you that someone's sitting in a in an office somewhere, you know, in, in the in the very dangerous confines of Washington or New York and they have an opinion on what's happening half a world away? Well, yes and no. I, 
I have no problem with opinion. I think that you have to take the news and then you can take that in whichever direction you want. And, you know, I may see horrible stories on the ground about, you know, the tragedy of war, but I think people sitting in D.C. have to take that all into account. And so I don't mind them doing opinion, but I want them to make their opinion based on the truth, based on what's really happening there. So I think we work together. I think it is my job to go and tell you exactly what's happening on the ground. And and I do get annoyed at some journalists who don't want to go to, to see this firsthand. You know, I think if you're going to tell someone's story, you need to look in the eyes of the person who's who's telling that story and how they're affected. But my news is to educate those who make decisions. It's there to educate my viewers. And there are different opinions to different stories. And I, I don't hold opinion against people. I just hope they make that opinion using true facts. And that's what I bring to the table. All right. I saw one thing in your bio that uh, caught my attention, that you spent some time in Durham, North Carolina. Did I see that correctly? Yes, sir. I, was, I went to Duke and uh, absolutely love North Carolina. It's become like a second home to me. How in the world could you be that close to South Carolina and not want to live here permanently? <laughs> I'll tell you what, I've taken a fair few trips down to South Carolina during my college years. I could tell you about some, I couldn't tell you about others. Um, <laughs> but both beautiful states. All right. You have, uh, uh, before I joined Fox and before I was in Congress, I was, I was in a courtroom and I, I never wanted people to have to tell um, a story more than they wanted to tell it. And I am certain that you have told about the day that you're the ninth that your car was attacked, maybe more than you've wanted to. But but our some of our listeners are hearing this for the first time. So you go into as much or as little detail as you want. But I I want you to give us a sense not just from a journalism standpoint, but from a life standpoint, you are you are riding down the road and then in the blink of an eye, seemingly your life can change. Yeah. And, and I don't mind telling the story at all, because for two reasons, first of all, it reminds whenever I tell it, it reminds those listening of the sacrifice of Pierre and Sasha who are with us. And it reminds people of the role that we do and how important journalism is and the, the, you know where we go to get it. So I'm happy to tell this story. And it's something that I think about every single day. You know, I'm badly injured as a result. I'm miss missing a leg, missing a foot, very badly burnt. My eye was taken by shrapnel um, as part of it. And so Look, this is part of my life and I have to embrace it. But that happened on March 14th last year, 2022. We had been in Kyiv at the beginning of the Ukraine war, just as Russian troops were coming down to encircle the city. And we went out one day, as we had been doing, you know, for the last couple of weeks to report on the, the front lines around the city and the defenses that the Ukrainians were building. We'd filmed our work. We'd done well. We were right out in a sort of no man's land, about 20, 30 miles from the Russians. And we were driving back. And I don't know where the first bomb just whistled out of the sky and it landed maybe 20, 30 feet in front of us. We quickly knew we were in trouble. Um, screams to sort of reverse the car to get back. And uh, then the second later, we the second bomb lands and that lands right next to the car. And that one blacked me out. And I know I got a lot of the facial injuries at that point and shrapnel in my throat. And um, and I was all but gone. I was all all but, but out of it. And as I was blacked out, I saw this incredible thing of, of calm and I saw my daughter right in front of my face. And my daughter said to me, said to me, Daddy, you, you've got to get out of the car. 
you've got to get out of the car. And, and amazingly, I came back and I opened my eyes and I just grabbed towards the door and I got out of the car. And then the next second, the car itself was hit by the third bomb. And that one threw me away. And I woke up on fire with my, my leg missing and my hand almost, uh, almost gone. And, um, and then began this battle to stay alive. And no cell phone reception. That had all been gone. It was me lying there next to our, my cameraman, Pierre, who had just gotten out. And we talked a little bit about, we thought there were Russian drones overhead and we shouldn't move for a while. Finally, I said, Pierre, I've got, I've got to go. I'm badly injured and I need to find a way home. And at that point, uh, he had passed away. So that, that happened while we were lying there. But I just remember thinking, whatever it takes now, whatever the pain, however I'm feeling, let's find a way to get home. I've got to go home and see my daughters. I'm going home to my family. And I began to drag myself a little bit. And out of nowhere, this car with Ukrainian special forces came by. The only car, you know, presumably for miles, and it just happened to take a wrong turn earlier in the road, and it came down past us. Um, I had a, a handful of, of rocks and stones because I'd actually seen it pass 10 minutes earlier, and it hadn't seen me at that point. But I was ready at that point, and I threw these rocks and these stones up at the, the car, um, and it saw me, and it, the car stopped. And last thing I remember, I was being dragged into it, and... Um, and uh, that was, you know, uh, what happened then. And my cameraman, Pierre, he died. Our fixer, Sasha, she uh, died. The two Ukrainians driving the car, they both died. So, you know, the other four died. And I was right in the middle. I was in what you would call the death seat. I mean, it, it is remarkable that, that I survived and the others didn't. Uh, and I think about that every day as well. But what began then, I woke up in a Ukrainian military hospital and then began uh, an incredible evacuation to try and get me to safety more of my interview with benjamin hall is next relationship between journalist and photographer or cameraman i i, I suspect it is more than just your normal co-worker relationship particularly when you're doing what you do for a living um pierre Sasha, I'm going to give you a chance to tell people what they should know and should remember and should reflect on uh, in their passing. Yeah, I mean, you know, Pierre and I have worked together for, for seven odd years and we covered you know, all the wars out there. We went from country to country, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria. Um, and uh, we were we would sleep on the floor near the front lines on some trips. We would make a decision when we went on stories whether we wanted to go and tell a story that could perhaps put our lives at risk. And you have to develop an incredible bond with someone to understand that both of you have to trust each other with your lives. And um, so Pierre and I were incredibly close. Um, and Sasha uh, was a, a fixer who had been working with us in Ukraine, risking her own life to take us to the places that we needed to go to and introduce us to the people that we needed to speak to, to tell the best story. In her eyes, she was working with us because that was her way of protecting Ukraine. If she could help the media get the stories that needed to be told, then that was her part in it. Um, so, you know, we always talked about where we were going to go. And we always talked about the, the dangers. And we always asked each other if we should go there, if it was an important story. And that's exactly how we felt on that day. And I think we remember that all the time now. But... Pierre was someone who loved journalism just like I did. He always believed in telling people's stories, on making sure that the viewers got the best images and the best stories. And so I know he died doing something he absolutely loved. And he would also reach out to other journalists and encourage them to keep on telling these stories and not be afraid of doing them. 
because there are risks involved in what we do. Um, and if you can't handle those risks, you shouldn't do it. But if uh, you're aware of them, be as safe as you can and, and then go, go and do it. Keep, keep working. You know, Benjamin, as you were telling, relaying to us the, the, the moment that your life changed, it dawned on me that every one of us at some point is going to sense this is the end. It's really rare that you get to come back and talk about it. Oftentimes, it is the end, um, and, and you can't talk about it. What should we know when you think the end is at hand and have something of a reprieve? You, you mentioned your daughter. Is it, is it family? Is it, what is it? It is family. It is, it's family, and it's, and it's helping others, you know? Um, I never thought that I was gone that day, and just despite the scale of the injuries, I always knew that I would do whatever it took till the very last breath I was going to keep fighting to stay alive. And so I never thought at one point, this is it for me, or I'm gone, or I'll be dead. I thought, how do we find a way out of it? How do we get home again? Um, but I have changed, in some regards, my outlook on life. It, the people who came to save me as well, and the people who helped me recover, are too many to mention, hundreds of them. There are people who came into Ukraine from Save Our Allies, this incredible group. They came in to rescue me. You know, despite the accident, I'm an American, a proud American. They knew an American was injured. They were stuck a bit near the front lines. They didn't know where I was. These incredible you know, veterans um, came in, put their own lives at risk to come and save me. And they managed to get me out from the front lines. And this remarkable story that I tell in my book, um, and they managed to get me out on this the train with the Polish prime minister of all people who was on a covert visit himself. But then I was with them at the U.S. military and the 82nd Airborne took me to Germany. And I was at Landstuhl where all the U.S. you know, injured soldiers who were injured in Iraq and Afghanistan went. And then I went to Bamsi, the Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, where I was for six months learning to walk again and, um, you know, being having all my operations. And what I remember most, what I have taken from all of this is how much that level of support, the strength it gives you. Every single person who came out and tried to help me in some way or you know, gave me some more motivation, they got me back to where I am today. And so you ask about all the things that have changed when you've come so close. And that's what I think about most is how amazing and important that unifying factor is. And that we need to spend as much of our lives and as much of our day going out and passing that on. Help people when they need help. Ask people how they're doing a few times. You know, go and help whoever needs it. I, I think that is so underrated in life. And maybe I took it for granted, but that's now what I think is absolutely important. So it's helping each other, understanding the importance of community uh, and its family as well. And I'm guilty to say that before this happened, I mean, I was laser focused on my career and every minute of every day was about getting to the next level and working hard. And some of that has moved away a bit and I've realized I can't give it, I need to spend some more time with my family. And I think it's given me an ability to find more of a balance. Maybe I had lost sight of myself. Um, so I honestly think that I've come out of this and I think that I have learned. I think that I am a better person. I think that I'm a stronger person because I've had to go through these experiences. And I think difficult times make people stronger. Never be afraid of them. And I was never afraid of this throughout the whole way. I just knew Whatever it takes, however painful this is, however difficult this is, there is good on the other side. If I keep fighting for it and I keep working for it, there is going to be good. And there always was. Um, and, and so I, I come out of this more of an optimist than ever. I know that no matter what difficulties you're feeling, together with enough hard work and belief, 
can get through anything at all. And that makes life a beautiful place for me. All right, Benjamin, as a journalist, you ask questions for a living, you get information, you, you, you ask hard questions. I would imagine two of the harder questions are kind of in conflict with one another. Do you ever reflect on why me and why not me? Those are seemingly in conflict, but as a survivor, you would be able to ask yourself both. Why me and why not me? No, never asked. Never asked why me. What happened to me was life, part of life. And it wasn't, I would have felt very differently had it this been a, a tragic accident happening while I was driving through the streets in New York that I wasn't expecting. And I've met many people who are injured like I've been injured where that happened out of nowhere. Their whole world was taken apart. I have, in some sense, the benefit of knowing where I was and what I was doing, and I was in a conflict zone. I knew where I was, and so I couldn't. I never looked back and think, "Gosh, why me?" Because I knew what I was doing. I, I think all of us knew what we were doing to be there. So no, I, I never think, "Why me?" Um, but no, I mean that—that's not a question that I've asked. Writing the book more cathartic, more of a struggle. Uh, something that you felt obligated to do, even though you may not have wanted to do? What was your motivation? In no, I loved it, loved it. All I wanted to do was record it. Uh, when I was lying on the ground and I was badly injured and I was bleeding heavily, I, just, I stopped and took a picture of my leg that was missing. Oh. And I, because I wanted to record it, and I deleted it very quickly, and it never uploaded, so it's not there anymore, but... From that point on, and from the moment I woke up, I wanted to keep recording it. I, I, I think it was the journalist in me coming out, and I was having my, handing my phone to doctors and having them record it. It is nature to me, and I think it's a safe place that I can go to. I wanted to keep moving. And so I was taking videos. I was writing notes whenever I was, you know, in a conscious, in a conscious mind. And that was what my recovery was about. And a few months in, I was talking to someone about a book, and I said, you know, I've written a lot of this down. I've been writing about how I feel and I've been writing about the hard parts and best parts. And, uh, and that's where the book came from. But look, recovery is very boring. You are sitting in a bed in hospital for months on end. And for a few months, I couldn't move at all. You need something to do. And for me, that was to work. It was about get my thoughts down, try and analyze how I was thinking. So nothing came to haunt me or to shock me later. So I was very open with myself and other people um, about writing it down. So I really enjoyed the book. And I, I know that if you don't record things straight away, then the story starts to change. It's never as accurate later on. And so part of this was getting down perfectly how I felt and what had happened. And that's what went into the book. Some people need goals um, in life to keep going. They, they, you, you mentioned learning to walk again. I think you're back in the, in the, in the London Bureau office. Those strike me as goals. What else have you not done that you are highly motivated to do? <laughs> uh, we talk about this all the time with my physios. Uh, skiing. I want to get back to skiing. I want to start by running. Um, so those are on the physical side. I also want to go and I'm starting to do a fair amount of work with other people, veterans as well, who have been injured. I think that I'm very lucky that I've come through this with optimism and, and, and that I'm happy where I am, but many people do not. And, um, you know, I speak to Save Our Allies as well, this great group in the Independence Fund. I know they're looking at suicides as well, the level of suicides among veterans. 
And um, so something else that I'm talking about doing now is reaching out and just being able to speak to anyone who's going through something like this and is having a difficult time, helping them to find their goals too. So that's a big goal of mine. And um, it's two-sided. If I can pass on some of the good, I want to do that. And then I want to push myself to every limit I can as well uh, on a personal basis. So, yeah, those two. We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. Your optimism, is it your nature is it something you work on? I mean, I, I am just struck by your, I mean, you have a more optimistic outlook on life than I do. I mean, I, I don't detect any cynicism at all in you. Is no, I, that, do you have to work on that? Is that just your nature? Is that the way you've always been? No, I'm, I'm very blessed in that sense. And um, I look, I sometimes ask myself where it comes from. And I suppose I look back at my parents who were incredible parents. And I think, that, that's why family is so important. You've got to motivate people and encourage people. You've got to, um, I was always encouraged to enjoy life, to try new things, you know, not to be afraid of anything. And so I don't know whether I was born with that or whether I was taught that, um, but I'm lucky. I, I'm optimistic and I always have been like this. And um, I really just think that the world can be a beautiful place despite the hardships and the evils. Some of the simple things are just the most rewarding. All right, I'm going to ask you one question just because I can't resist it at the end, and then I'm going to end on an optimistic note in honor of you because you are optimistic. You're not a political writer. I don't expect you to utter a political word. Um, I, I was on the, I sat on the Republican side when I was in the House. I have a really hard time trying to figure out whether some Republicans are pulling for Russia or Ukraine. I, I never thought I would ever utter that sentence, but I'm having a really tough time figuring out who they're pulling for. That's not your line of work. But what is it about that war, that conflict, that invasion that you wish more people knew or reflected on? I think that when you cover a war like this, I think I said this earlier, there are different sides to it. There's what's happening on the ground. There is stopping the spread of an empire like Russia, and that could send messages to countries like China, and there are really important reasons to keep people back. There are other reasons as well. Um, for example, you know, those who think that World War Three could be a result of this, and at what point do you are you balancing that versus what's happening on the ground? Now, I have a very clear understanding of where I stand in that, but I don't, you know, I, I let some people... It's better to have all opinions on the table so we can think about them all. But what I would say is that Ukraine is holding back an army that wants territorial conquest and to spread its own version of evil further than it has before. And if we can't just stand up and realize that that is wrong, then I'm not sure what is. So it's a difficult question for me because I know that... You know, the Ukrainians would not have held the Russians back if it weren't for the support they've been given. And if that support dries up, that changes too. And we're watching it right now. You know, the counteroffensive is, hap is happening. And if the Ukrainians can't take much territory, you will see a shift from the West and from the US, and some of that funding will dry up, and then we might be in a different situation. Um, so I just think that you have to look at good versus evil. Know which side we stand on. Should we be stopping evil when it is trying to conquer towns and villages and bomb schools and kill women and children? Or should we sit back and say, no, you know, this one's not really for us. I know which side of that argument I stand on. And um, you know, I, I think we have, to, we have to be very positive about that. Speaking of positive, that's how I want us to end. I want you to give our listeners, in addition to the book Saved, is there a book that is 
changed your life that you have read that you wish more people would read that maybe they they don't know about hadn't heard about goodness um no i mean i would say i actually grew up on some of the hemingway books to be honest i thought that they're just great examinations of human nature as well i read a fair amount of biographies i wouldn't say they're always gripping but i think they're always uh, interesting kissinger's china i think is great I think we've got to learn a lot about what's happening in China at the moment. And as a journalist, that's the way I was heading as well, towards covering more China than the Middle East. Just any book that really tries to represent human nature and the reality of people, I think, is important. Uh, and at the same time, a good old fiction, piece of fiction works well to take your mind off it. So, yeah, I mean, endless list, to be honest. I think before we went on air, you were talking about the cycle of surgery, recovery, surgery, recovery. Uh, there was a young man from my hometown that was uh, injured in uh, Iraq. I uh, quit counting in the 50s in terms of number of surgeries. Uh, how many have you had? How many left to go? I'm, I've lost count of how many I've had. I mean, it's just over 30 at the moment. Um, I'm not sure exactly. I had an eye operation a few weeks ago. And I have another couple of operations in a few weeks from now. Um, they're still sorting out. Um, I've got what's left of my foot is a problem, and that foot may come off, which would give me uh, just beyond two prosthetics. So I'm in that point at the moment where we're not entirely sure. We're trying to save parts of my foot. We're trying to stop my right leg getting ever shorter. So it's open-ended at the moment. And I think if you just look ahead and about, I've decided not to be worried about any operations. I'll do however many I have to to get better. But it's a cyclical, a cyclical thing at the moment. I now have an operation. I recover for a few weeks, and then I want to work for a few weeks. I want to get back to doing normal things. Then I go have another operation. I recover for a few weeks, and then get back to work. So life has developed this pattern. Uh, it's broken up between operations and, and work, to be honest. So hopefully that goes on for another year, and then I hope to be on the other side of the big operations. But um, it's an ongoing process at the moment professionally what's your next step what are your goals what would you like to do professionally well um as i was saying earlier what i amazed me most and what inspired me most uh, are all the incredible people who came to help me and the power that they have and what i want to do professionally is look at some of those people tell some of those stories uh, across the u.s in communities that have been hard hit for example uh, there are people who f who can pull people together, pull communities together. Uh, and I want to focus on telling their stories. I spent 15 years covering wars, and actually I feel far more inspired now by the positive stories out there. And I, I think I'm going to start talking about them a bit more. So hopefully we've got a, um, some of that lined up, and hopefully Fox viewers will be able to see that in a few months. But uh, that's something we're working on at the moment. All right. We're going to end with the most positive story of all. Uh, your family, your daughter is what you saw that gave you the motivation to get out of the car and keep going. Tell us what you feel comfortable telling us about your family to the extent that that is and was and remains the motivation for Benjamin Hall. Well, first and foremost, I have to talk about my wife, Alicia. You know, you marry, you say then and there, you say whether in sickness or in health. And uh, I don't think my wife was expecting any of this, but there hasn't been a single second where she hasn't just said, whatever we've got to do, we'll do it together no matter what. She picks me off the floor and I fall down. She changes bandages when she has to change bandages. And she hasn't once, you know, for once said, 
oh, why? Or what's happened? Oh, our life has changed. She has been there every step of the way. And I just realized how important that is. My children, I remember the thing I was most afraid of was my children learning that I had prosthetics on and um, how afraid they would be. They weren't afraid for a second. They gathered themselves. They saw dad's robot leg and they thought, that's the coolest thing ever. And they're so proud of it at the moment. And that's what I love, you know, trying to raise children who aren't afraid of seeing different things, who would embrace it, who realize that there are positives in all evil. And um, I think that I have been blessed to have the best family. And that's what I focus on every day. And I, I absolutely love every second that I get a to be with them. And one of the benefits is I'm having conversations with my children that I wouldn't have had otherwise, you know, difficult conversations. And I like that too. I think that's important for them and their upbringing. Let's sit down and talk about this. This is great, you know? Um, so I think that's going to raise stronger kids. I, I think that they've gone through something that's difficult and they've come out of it stronger the way I have. And we're doing it as a family and I've never felt closer to them. I think that we are one team and nothing is going to bring us apart. So, uh, yeah, be a good time. All right. I said that was the last question, but I've got one more, and it may be the most divisive question of all, so I want you to be prepared. If I'm not mistaken, you have dual citizenship, British and American, am I right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> when you hear the word football, do you think soccer or do you think going to Wallace Wade Stadium at Duke University and watching an old real football game? I tell you what, when I was at Duke, I don't think we'd won a football game in three years. So it wasn't pulling me in. That's true. Now, you're not going to like my answer, but I'm a big soccer fan myself. That's where football is. Is there a team you pull for? I, I, I know it, it, it is heresy for me not to know the different teams in England, but, but, but you have to kind of associate with one of the soccer teams, don't you, or football teams? No, absolutely. I mean, I support Chelsea, which was just bought by some American owners, and I ha hate to say it, but they've come on in, and they've, um, they've really kind of messed it up for the moment, so we'll, we'll see how, how it goes. Um, you guys, America's doing really well. You've got Messi, so Messi coming over to uh, Miami. Well, that's going to change a lot. Yeah, I can't. Uh, I can't wait for that. It, it is the most popular sport in the world. It is getting more popular here. Um, it's hard to compete with college football as we call college football. But you know, if I went to Duke, I'd probably be more into soccer too. Quite honestly. Yeah. Well, that's it. Exactly. Or, or basketball. Or basketball. Benjamin Hall. The book is saved. It is. Uh, Look, the word inspiration is thrown around. It's used way too much. Um, it is not an overstatement for me to say uh, this has been inspiring for those of us who thought we had challenges or thought that there were, you know, what do we have in life to be optimistic about? We're all cynical. Um, you are not. You have more reason to be than we do, but you are not. So, Thank you for that, and um, and and thank you for for writing the book and for uh, sharing with our listeners today. Yeah, Trey, it's a pleasure to be with you. Anytime, um, come on over. We'll watch some soccer together. <laughs> Benjamin Hall, ladies and gentlemen, thank you. Thank you. Listen ad free with a Fox News podcast plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad free on the Amazon Music app. 